This morning we're going to be looking into uh, John chapter 15. <laughs> Sorry. My wife leaves me notes in the weirdest places and she left me a note in here. It says, die to yourself, man. <laughs> she, I love her New York personality. This is sweet in New York Italian. No, actually says, die to yourself and he will have the victory. That's so true. And I needed to die to myself this morning. Apparently, I was a little whiny last night, so. <laughs> I love that. Anyway, we're in John chapter 15. Um, we're going to be going through the first 11 verses. And in this passage is probably one of the most important passages as far as our Christian faith is concerned. In these verses, Jesus speaks of the relationship between himself and the Father, uh, between himself and the believer, uh, the process of sanctification, how to live a joyous life, how to live a fruitful life. It shows his love and care for you as his shepherd. It shows the dependency that we have to have upon him, the necessity of obedience, how to glorify God with your life, and best of all, it shows that intimate relationship that we can experience with him. And that's just in the first 11 verses. And obviously, we're not going to cover all these things I just mentioned, but I just wanted to say that because I believe that this is one of the most powerful passages in Scripture. And it's all based on one word, the word abide. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But let's just getting caught up to how we got to John chapter 15 here. Uh, and most of you who have ever studied the Gospel of John, you know that this is referred to as the Upper Room Discourse. The Upper Room Discourse starts from chapter 13 through chapter 17. And obviously this was very impactful on John's life because he spends a big portion of his gospel uh, in this upper room. And we know all about the upper room, why, did, why this whole place took place and uh, what's going on in here. We know through other gospels that Jesus uh, told two disciples to go out and, and follow this man who had the picture on his head and say, we need your place because we're going to have our supper together. And they did. And it was a supper room, and they had broken bread together. And other Gospels talk about how uh, this is where Jesus explained to them the new covenant. And to this point, Jesus has washed his disciples' feet. He's told them all about what it is to be a true servant. He's talked about his betrayal. He's given them a new commandment. Do you remember what the new commandment is? To what? Love one another as I have loved you. He's also told, talked to Peter about his denial and he also reveals himself in the sixth I am statement. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And he doesn't end there. He goes on to say in John chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, he says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me. And I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. And if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. 
Man, we could just stop right there and just end it, right? Let's pray. No, I'm just kidding. There is so much just in that passage here. And like, like I said before, uh, I'm just barely going to scratch the surface. And I believe that this passage and the whole discourse actually is probably uh, the richest and the, probably the most, uh, I guess, the greatest writing in the New Testament. But Jesus, then, going back to the beginning, he refers to the father as the vine dresser. And I love the way the King James puts it. He puts the husbandman. That word husbandman actually means a tiller of, tiller of soil. Um, and by Jesus referring to the father in that way, He's basically saying that this is his soil, his land, his vineyard. I am the true vine. I'm his vineyard. And in the Old Testament, if you looked at Isaiah chapter 5, there's a song that's written in there. And it talks about the vineyard that, that God had planted. And he says the vineyard is Israel. And a lot of uh, scholars believe that by Jesus saying that I am the true vine, he was saying I am the true Israel. And that would be huge if you were Jewish, especially talking to his disciples here. Because basically what he's saying here is that, hey, if you want to really be nourished, if you want to grow, if you want to present fruits that are before God, that are righteous before God, you have to be connected to me. You have to be rooted to me. I am the true vine. There's no other way. I am the only way. And by using that I am statement too as well, he's talking about his deity. John makes seven statements of I am statements and more, much more than that. But he's talking about the I am that I am that is talking about in Exodus chapter 3. But he must be rooted, not in their traditions, but in him. Not in their religion, but in him. And this is really an important statement that Jesus is making here because he's really only hours away from being taken away from them. Their comfort, their source of comfort was Jesus right there in front of them, in their midst all the time. And he's soon going to be arrested and taken away. And this would speak volumes to them because they're going to be scattered and they're not going to know what to do. And Jesus says, you need to be connected to me. In order to be nourished, in order to grow in Christ, that you have to be connected to me. You have to abide in me. Because if you look in chapter 14, you will see that he starts bringing them words of comfort and affirmation. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me. He goes on and talks about the Holy Spirit. It's the promise of the Father. He also talks about saying that, you know, I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm not going to leave you by yourself. I'm going to be taken from you, but I'm not leaving you orphans. He also ends with peace. Peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. And again, he says, let not your heart be troubled, let it not be afraid. He's going to be taken out of the picture here. But during this upper room discourse, this is a time of intimacy. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus just pouring in his disciples these last few hours, giving everything that they need. And it's so intimate, John portrays himself as one who's lying in the bosom of Jesus, the one whom Jesus loved. I love that picture of how he portrays that. But in order for them to be connected, they have to be rooted in him. Abide in me, he says over and over again. And really, I'm going to throw some questions at you throughout this message, and I want you to ponder on these questions. And my first question to you is, what or who are you rooted in? What or who are you rooted in? Because we can be rooted in a lot of different things besides Christ, right? We can be rooted in relationships. There's so many things in this world that we get distracted from. We can be rooted in those things. But who are you rooted in? Are you rooted in Christ or are you rooted in the things of this world? Now, there's a common thread throughout this passage here, and I mentioned it before. It's this word abide or abides. Jesus uses it 10 times in verses 4 through 10. He says, abide in me and I in you. The branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. 
If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and he gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask me desire and it shall be done for you. Verse 9, as the Father loved me, I also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And it's pretty obvious that Jesus is sending us a message here, right? This word abide. The word abide uh, is so impactful, I think, in John's life. He uses it 20 times in this first and second epistle. And the point that Jesus is making here again, in order to have a fruitful life, the only way it's going to happen is by us and them abiding in Christ. This word abide is the word meno in the Greek. It actually is a primary verb that means to stay in a given place or to stay in a given state. It means to linger in expectancy. It means to continue. It means to dwell. It means to endure. It means to be present. It means to remain, to remain in that same place, not to move. Not to wander, but to remain. Because most of the time, when I think about, at least for me personally, and I'm sure it's the same for you, when we're struggling in life, when we're struggling in our faith, and we're dabbling in certain sins, and we're not letting it go, most likely we're not abiding like we should be. For those of us who are married, if you're struggling in your marriage, if you're having major problems in your marriage, maybe you're on the verge of divorce, then most likely, one of you, or maybe both of you, are not abiding like you should. You know, I had the privilege of giving my testimony about a month ago. And, and this is, you know, when you talk about abiding in Christ, I know most of you are probably saying, well, I am abiding in Christ. But I'm overwhelmed. I'm going through trials. And it just seems like God doesn't hear me sometimes. Or he's so far away. You know, when I was talking about my testimony, there was a time where I started compromising and from that point to the time I actually repented was about an eight-year period. The last four years of that eight years was terrible, and the last two and a half years were worser. There's no word it's worser, but you get the picture, right? But that was only half of my testimony. My wife has the other half. There was some things that God was doing in her life that just were radically just supernatural things. The last two and a half years, I was MIA. I was missing. She had no idea where I was at. I wouldn't surface for weeks or months at a time. But there was times where she would find me, supernaturally. God would just say, get in the car and drive, and all of a sudden she'd find me at this drug house that she had no idea existed. But there was a point where God just said, stop. And one day she tell, told me the story, and I just wept when I heard the story. And I still do when I talk about it. She was lying in bed one night, and her and I, we dated for four years before we got married, so we knew everything about each other. I mean, all the ugly stuff in the past about each other, and just, we just grew together, you know, as a, as a couple, and we were really close. We were best of friends. And one night she was in bed, and she was praying to the Lord. She was crying. She says, Lord, where's my best friend, the one who knows me the best? He's gone. And the Lord spoke to her in this still small voice, and he says, I'm right here. I never left you. You just abide in me. And from that point on, God radically changed her life, and he began to develop this intimate relationship with her. You know, we talk about this stuff that we went through in our lives and the stuff that I put her through, and, you know, we wouldn't wish that on our enemy, but we are so blessed that we went through it because of what it brought, the fruit that it produced in our lives. But she learned how to abide in Christ in that way, and that's so important. Because when we're going through trials, we have to continue to abide in Christ no matter how we feel. It's not about our feelings and not about our emotions. 
It's about us just being still, being in that one same place. That's where our security, that's where our safety is, is abiding in him. There's a saying that we used to say back in the 70s and 80s, if God seems far away, guess who moved? It's not him. David refers to him as the rock. He doesn't move. He doesn't change. He's always there. He says that in his word. I'll never leave. I'll never forsake. He's always there. He's the faithful one. Another question I have for you to ponder on. Are you abiding in Christ? Are you wandering in the wilderness? Today, are you abiding in Christ or are you wandering in the wilderness? A simple way to find that out, the scripture says that we need to examine ourselves. We need to examine ourselves. I don't know about you, but I have to do that daily. Um, and the one way that we can examine ourselves is to look at yourself and say, am I bearing fruit to God? Am I bearing fruit unto the Lord? And if you're wondering what fruit is, well, that's a good question. Because I'm going to give you three reasons why it's absolutely necessary to abide in Christ. Number one is that we need to bear fruit. Now, Jesus uses this word bearing fruit six times in this 11 verses that we just read. Now, the word fruit, I'm going to give you the explanation in the Greek. And when I give you this explanation, it's going to clear things right up for you. You're going to understand this like, you know, like it's on the back of your hand. Here's the explanation of the Greek word for fruit. It's the word fruit. <laughs> clear, as, clear as mud, right? It actually means fruit, fruit from a tree or fruit from a plant. But metaphorically speaking, it's talking about our works and our deeds. The fruit of your life is invisible, or it's, it's, it should be visible. The work is invisible, but the fruit is very visible. It's an outward expression of what's going on with the work that God's doing in your life. And it should be seen. It, sh it should be very, very evident in your life. Paul gives a great explanation of what fruit is in Philippians chapter 1, verse 11. This is what he says. He says, may you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation. And here's what the explanation of fruit is. It's the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. And Jesus is going to talk about that too in chapter 15. He says it does bring glory to God when you produce fruit in your life. You know, the author of Hebrews, when he was talking about the chastening of the Lord, he says that it produces this peaceable fruit of righteousness in your life. The fruit that God produces in your life is righteousness, having a righteous character. The Bible defines righteousness in this way. It says it's a behavior that is morally justifiable or right. And this is how God measures our human righteousness is by his righteousness. And if you're thinking, well, that's crazy. I can't live up to his righteousness. There's no way. There's no way I can do that. And if you think that, you're absolutely right. Look at what John 15, 5 says. Look at the end of that verse. What does it say? For without me, you can do nothing. Jesus is telling his disciples, without me, you cannot produce any righteousness in your life. You cannot produce any fruit in your life without me. It's impossible. Just by me and me alone is the only way that you're going to be nourished, and it's the only way that you're going to be able to produce righteousness in your life. And I love what King David writes in Psalm 16, because he understood this concept. Psalm 16, verses 1 and 2, he says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, You are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. And that's so true, and that's so beautiful. Listen to what Isaiah 64, 6, verse 6 says. It says, We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds... They are nothing but filthy rags, 
Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and our sin sweeps us away like the wind. Listen, we don't bring anything to the table. Our righteousness, there's like filthy rags. There's nothing good about us. Our best work, even at our very, very best, it's still nothing. Like Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You cannot produce righteous fruit without me. But don't lose hope. The Lord does give us hope. He does give us a way. And I love this writing. This, this whole discourse is, is put out so beautifully because on the two bookends of chapter 15, chapter 14 and 16, Jesus mentions the same thing, the Holy Spirit. He talks about the spirit of truth that's going to reveal all things to you. He's not going to speak on his own authority. Whatever he hears, he's going to say to you. And I love that. And one of the times that John uses this word abide in his epistles, it's in 1 John chapter 4, verse 13. He says, and by this we know that we abide in him and that he is in us because he has given us his spirit. That's his guarantee. That's his down payment. That's how we know we abide in him because he's given us his spirit. He's given us the power to abide in him. He's given us the power to overcome sin. He's given us the power to walk in a strong faith when we're abiding in him. You know, Paul explains this whole concept of what the Holy Spirit does in our lives so beautifully in Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16, he says, So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what is sinful, what the sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us, gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are no under, under obligation to the law of Moses. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. I don't think you left anything out there, right? Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the Holy Spirit, I love that, but the Holy Spirit provides this kind of fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And there is no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ have nailed them, the passions and the desires of their sinful nature, to his cross and crucified them there. And since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Man, that's a lot. That's great. And you notice there in verse 22 where it talked about what the Holy Spirit produces it's the fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. You notice that it's just one fruit. It's kind of like a pomegranate. When you open up a pomegranate, what do you get? A bunch of seeds, right? But can you imagine if every seed had a different flavor to it? Kind of like Skittles, right? <laughs> but that's what the fruit is. It's one fruit. But all these characteristics are in that one fruit. So you can't tell me that, hey, I don't have patience, or I don't have peace, or I don't have self-control. Yeah, you do. God planted that in you with his spirit. It's in there. It just needs to be cultivated. And that means that you need to die to yourself and allow God to cultivate that in your life. It's there. It's ours for the taking. God's design, if you ever know what God's will is, that's it. It's for us to be fruit-producing believers. 
But you do notice in verses 5 and 8, he says something else. Back in John 15, verses 5 and 8, he says, we're to bear much fruit. Not just a little, but much fruit. That word much is where we get our word mucho from. No, I'm just kidding. No, actually, it's probably true, right? Mucho fruta. Yes. He says, if you abide in me and I in here, you bear much fruit. Without me, you can do nothing. That word much is a great word because it means not only abundant in, in quantity, but also in quality. It actually means to exceed. It means to have more excellent fruit. In other words, when you're abiding in Christ, you're never, ever going to stop producing fruit in your life. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 92, in verses 12 through 15, it says, The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there's no unrighteousness in him. I love that. They'll still bear fruit in old age. I can't wait till I get old and I can still bear fruit. I don't know if I'll be fresh and flourishing, but I'll, you know, I'll definitely be bearing fruit. Listen, another question I have for you, and I know what you're thinking. Oy vey, another question. Yeah. Do people know you by your fruits? Do they recognize you by your fruits? Are you exhibiting fruits of righteousness so that they know without a shadow of a doubt that you belong to your king? Just good question. Now, the second reason why it's so necessary for us to abide in Christ, it changes our desires. And that's big because really our desires are what drives us, isn't it? You know, I, to me, I have to pray every morning, Lord, I want to put my desires to death. I want my desires. I'm going to put them at your feet, and I want you to give me your desires because I know what my desires are. They're not very good, you know, and so I have to put those to death every day. But abiding in Christ gives us a different desire. Verse 7 says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. And I know we take this verse, a lot of people do. They say, well, I'm a Christian. It says here that if I ask whatever I want, I should get it, right? No, that's not what it's saying. It, the emphasis is not on asking. It's on the desire. The key to understanding verse 7 is where he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Jesus has been pouring in his disciples the last three and a half years the word of God. He's been teaching them, explaining it to them, giving them life experience in the word of God. And he does the same for us today. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, the word of God alone has the power to transform a life. I love what Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 talks about. It says that for the word of God is living. You all know this verse, right? It's living, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the vision and soul and spirit and joints and marrow. And this is the scary part. It's a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart and knows and when you took every, if you took every one of these things apart like the, living, uh, the word of God is living, it means that it's li it lives, that it's alive. When you talk about how powerful it is, that word powerful in the Greek actually means that it's active, it's operative, it's, operative, it's effectual, it's always at work. When it's sharper than any two-edged sword, that means it cuts both ways with one single blow. That's kind of like when we study for the word of God, when we come up here before we teach, it cuts us first before it cuts you. Believe me, it cuts deep. As a pastor, it really cuts deep. But when it talks about pierces the soul, joints, the marrow, in other words, it reaches every part of man and nothing is left out. And when it says the word of God is the discerner of the thoughts and tents of the heart, 
It means that everything is brought to view by the word of God. Everything. Again, nothing is left out. That's amazing when you think about how powerful the word of God is. You know, and we have such a gift. And I know, you know, when we do uh, counseling, when we counsel with people, one of the questions that we always ask them is that, are you in the word? Or how often are you in the word? And I know what you probably thinking, you go, well, you pastors always ask that question, you know, that's just your pet answer question or whatever. And that's true. And the reason why we ask it, because we know by experience how much power is in the word of God. When you spend time in the word, how much it's going to radically change your life. I mean, we are so blessed. I mean, this little love letter that we have, it's just amazing how powerful it is. You know, you want to know God in a deeper way, then you got to get into his word. And that means daily. And I know that's where we struggle in life. But really, that's, that's the key to knowing him in a deeper way. That's the best way you're going to experience God. And that's the best way that you're going to transform your life is by spending time with him and spending time in his word. I love what David Kuzik says. He says that the word of God is a cleansing agent. It condemns sin. It inspires holiness. It promotes growth. It reveals the power over for victory. Amen. It really does. Listen to what King David said in Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. He says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making the wise, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sin. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgressions. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer or my rock. When we are rooted in Christ and rooted in his words, the desires, our desires are going to change. That's the key to understanding this verse. It's not about our desires, it's about his desires. When you are rooted in his word and rooted in Christ and abiding in him, your prayer life is going to change drastically. It's going to go from give me, give me, give me to, Lord, what do you desire? What do you want from me? What do you require of me? The third and final reason why there's such a need to abide in Christ because this is where we're going to find our real joy. Verse 11 says that these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. When we don't abide in Christ, and we're not keeping his commandments, we're never going to experience that fullness of joy that he's talking about here. That word joy in the Greek means cheerfulness, but it also means calm delight. I love that, calm delight. Our explanation or our de definition of, of joy it means happiness and excitement, and it's based on circumstances. The joy that Jesus is talking about here is not based on circumstances. You know where Jesus' joy came from? It came from his obedience to the Father. That's where he found his joy, the joy that was set before him. He knew the joy that was coming by him enduring that cross, that pain, and that shame and suffering he took on our behalf. His joy came from being obedient to the Father, and your joy and my joy can come by being obedient to what God's called us to do. We can have that same exact joy that Jesus is talking about by our obedience. And it doesn't matter what our circumstances are, what they may be, 
will always remain joyful. We can remain joyful in them. A beautiful picture of this is in Nehemiah chapter 8. If you ever read Nehemiah, great book. Encourage you to read, especially chapter 8. Nehemiah has just finished the wall. And Ezra, he's reading to the, the, the word of God to the people after they're finished. And when he's done reading, he starts sending the con people out into the congregation to teach them what he had read to them. And when they started understanding it, they were broken over it. They were broken over their sin, realizing that they had been disobedient to the Lord. And this is what Nehemiah, he gets up on the platform and he says this. He says, go your way. This is Nehemiah 8.10. He says, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those of whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And listen, this is how the people responded in verse 12. It says, And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly, because they understood the words that were declared to them. They understood what was being said to them. It didn't change their circumstances. They understood because they responded in obedience to God, to his calling, to the conviction of the word of God. And they responded, and I gave them joy. They became obedient, and that's where your real joy comes from. It comes from being obedient to him and abiding in his love. The last thing I want to talk about is this pruning process. In a few minutes here, I'm going to have the pastors up here with pruning shears, and I'm going to ask you guys to come up, and if you want to be pruned, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. The King James, I love the way the King James puts this. The King James doesn't use the word pruning. It uses the word purge. I love that word purge. And Jesus tells his disciples in verse 3 there, he says that you are already clean. That word clean actually means pure. You're already clean. You're already pure because of the word which I have spoken to you. Now, like these guys, you, you know, they weren't perfect. Just because they were cleansed by the word doesn't mean they were perfect. There was still some work that needed to be done in their lives. It's pretty obvious. You'll see that, you know, if you follow Peter's life, for example, you see that he wasn't perfect yet. There was still a process that needed to be done of purifying and pruning in their lives. Uh, you know the story of the refiner's fire, right? It's funny because I just was, happened to watch a video just recently about purifying gold. And because of technology today, they have these different ways of purifying gold. But they'll tell you the only way that you can get a, a, the, the highest way to get purified gold of 98% is by fire, is by heat. Heating it up and melting it and letting the dross come to the top and just scraping off that dross. And that's what Jesus does in our lives sometimes, right? Sometimes he has to turn up the heat to get our attention or to get things out of our lives, to purge us from the things that are holding us back, from the sins that are holding us back. I love what John MacArthur talks about here in this um, chapter 15. He says, God removes all things in the believer's life that would hinder fruit bearing, i.e., he chastises to cut away sin and hindrances that would drain spiritual life, just as a farmer removes anything on the branches that keeps them from bearing maximum fruit. I love that. There's things that hinder us from growing. There's things that drain our spiritual life and our lives. There's things of sin that we, you know, we don't want to give up. God wants to remove those things. When we commit our lives to Christ, we don't come prepackaged, already cleaned and pure, right? We come with baggage, right? We like to call them issues. Yeah, I got issues. Yeah, we all got issues. But God doesn't just start cutting away while you're sleeping or you just don't lay there and say, okay, God, prune me. Do your thing. No, there's something that we have to do. It's a two-way street. It's a relationship, right? Every relationship takes work. Has any of you been in a relationship that didn't take work? No. It, it, 
Marriage doesn't take work, right? No, it does take work, right? Both sides, both parties. Our relationship to God takes work, and so does the pruning process. And here's the first thing we have to do. Number one, you have to surrender your will to his will. And that's like, you think, well, that's, that's simple, is it? That means we have to remove the walls of pride. Now, I'm looking around, and I see most of you women, I know you guys are like sweet and innocent. You don't deal with pride like us men do, right? You guys need more coffee in here? Is that what the problem is? Okay. <laughs> no, it seems like men deal with pride more than uh, women do. And I know why. I mean, because we're men and because we think that we got it together and we have to have it together and, you know, we have to fix everything and we have to just be that rock. And sometimes that can be dangerous because walls of pride can be built up. And that's the first step that you got to do is you got to let the walls of pride down. Men, we have to let the walls of pride down so God can do work in us. And you have to admit that there's branches that need to be pruned. You know, um, anybody grow roses out there? You guys grow roses, anybody? I know I do. I grow roses. I know what one thing I learned, that roses love to be cut, you know? They do. And every year I do the same thing. About this time every year, I take our rose trees and I just butcher them. I mean, I cut them down to nothing. And my wife says the same thing every year. Don't you think you're cutting a little too much? And it's like, no. Because when it comes to spring, they're just like, poof, just like amazing how big they grow and how fast they grow. But I prune away. I take the dead stuff off first, and then I just start cutting the branches back to they're just like nothing. And it's the same thing that God does. When we knock down those walls of pride, he starts pruning away and start taking things out of our lives. And you notice, too, it says in this passage here that when we are producing fruit, that he cuts that branch as well. It's like, wait a minute, I'm, I'm doing good. Why do you cut that off? Well, I want you to produce more fruit. There's always more to be produced. Listen, when you admit that you have issues and you need pruning and you have sin in your life that needs to be dealt with, God is very, very faithful. I can tell you that from experience. He acts like right away, immediately. He responds right away to start pruning, to start showing you those things, to start purging you. He brings them to the surface so that you'll see them and so that you will respond to them. And that's the choice that we have to make. When God shows us these things, we have a choice to make. We either respond or we don't respond. And let me just warn you, if you don't respond, there's going to be consequences. You're going to reap what you sow. And some consequences are greater than others, aren't they? But you have to respond to God one way or the other. Listen, again, the Lord didn't leave us orphaned. He gave us absolute power to overcome these things in our lives. But we tend to make excuses, don't we? We always make excuses. I know I, I've used every excuse in the book, and, and then some. I mean, I've heard every excuse as well. Well, I, you know, I'm older, and I've been this way for so long, there's no way I can change, you know? I'm from New York, I can't change, you know? Anybody from New York? Oh, jeez. <laughs> Forgive me. I just say that because my wife's from New York. And she'll be the first to admit that's her excuse, or used to be her excuse, that, oh, I'm from New York. That's just who I am. Um, well, it took me a while to Californiaize her, but I got there. <laughs> no, there's no excuse. We have no excuse. All we have to do is admit it and fall before God, and he'll change us. He'll radically change us, and he's so faithful in doing that. And I'm amazed how many times or how many things that we'll run to instead of running to him, the one who can do the impossible. The things that we seem are impossible. He is able to do and able to change. And I'm going to close with this 
And I love these passages of scripture. How many of you have heard of Paul's put off and put ons? You heard of those? In Ephesians chapter four and Colossians chapter three, he has this great list of put on and put off. This is what you need to put off. This is what you need to put on. Uh, I'm just going to tell you what Ephesians is. If you want to write it down, Ephesians 4, 17 through 32, you can look at that up later. And I'm going to read to you out of Colossians chapter 3. And beginning in verse 1, he says, If you then were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of this earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked, past tense, once walked, not anymore, you once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off these things. Here's what you're supposed to put off. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in the knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Whether there is Greek nor Jew nor circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, here's what you need to put on. Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving, with, forgiving one another. Those of you who are married, you need to memorize that part. Bearing one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, you also can forgive them if you want to. It doesn't say that, does it? It says you must forgive. We must forgive. It's not an option. We must forgive. But above all these things, put on love. You notice that in the, when we read the fruit of the Spirit, remember what the first characteristic was? Was love. Love's always the foundation of everything, and that's what he's saying here. Above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you are also called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of God dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. That's a lot. But did you notice in that first, very first verse, he says, if then you were raised with Christ. Actually, you can change that word to since. He's not giving an option here. He's given a solution. This is what you must do. You put off these things, and you put on these things. You know, as we close here, I just want to um, pray for us and also remind you that abiding in Christ is so essential in our faith. You have to be abiding in Christ if you want to flourish, if you want to grow, if you want to have victory over sin. And allow God to purge these things out of your life. And this morning, we're just going to take some time to pray.